0: RAC's post Podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. For nearly 20 years, General and Acute Care Physician, Dr Simon Quilty, has witnessed up close the entrenched poverty that inflicts Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory. Their dire circumstances are exacerbated by systems failures and lack of health care. Despite the incredible challenges, there are opportunities though, and Dr Quilty commends the Rural Australasian College of Surgeons' attempts to encourage surgeons to work in remote parts of the country. Today, Dr Quilty is based on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, but still contributes significantly in the centre, including his efforts with Purple House, which provides Aboriginal communities with much-needed medical and social support. More about that in a moment. First, before Dr Quilty studied medicine, he had a background in engineering. Chris Ashmore asks what inspired his transition to medicine.
1: Well, I'll be really frank, as a young bloke growing up in Western Sydney, I was interested in cars. I got into engineering to try and make my Holden Gemini go faster. I kid you not, it was as simple as that. And by the time I'd finished my engineering degree, I realised that I wanted to do something more focused on health and I was particularly interested in the Northern Territory. I spent quite a lot of time as a kid out in Central Australia and in North Australia and realised that studying medicine might be a ticket to working with remote communities and to have a role in Northern Territory.
2: What is it about the Territory, particularly the remote communities, that draw you to there? Well, I mean, firstly, there's the
1: spectacular ecology and scenery of remote Outback Australia, and I was fortunate as a child to experience that, and I think it was something that really sunk deeply into my heart. But then secondly, and and even more importantly, is... opportunity to work with aboriginal elders many of whom who can very clearly recall the first time they set eyes on a white person and realized that their world had forever changed and over the last couple of decades i've increasingly realized that this extraordinary experience to work with people with a completely different understanding of the world in which we live in and an incredibly valid understanding of the ecosystems of australia so working with old people who can tell you about the hunting habits of thylacines because thylacines, which died out on the mainland of Australia some 5,000 years ago, are still within the song lines and the knowledge of how they hunted is retained by people that know this land better than any biologist or ecologist could possibly ever even imagine. And so the cultural complexity goes on and on and deeper and deeper and the longer I've had the privilege of working for these elders, the more I've realised how much we all have to learn how to be a true and authentic Australian on this land that we all love so
2: much. Absolutely. The territories are a vast area? Any particular places that you were in? Yeah, look, I've worked all over the territory, but
1: I started their first specialist service at Catherine Hospital in 2012 and spent eight years working in Catherine. It's very dear to my heart. It's an extraordinary ecosystem at the bottom of Kakadu. It's the last permanently running river all the way down to Adelaide. So the biodiversity is breathtaking. The cultural complexity and diversity in the Catherine region is really quite amazing as well. It's an extraordinary frontier town where you can still really reach right into Indigenous culture. And my experience has been that it's been received with deep cultural generosity to teach me other ways of thinking and understanding about not only the landscape, but also health and well-being.
2: There are challenges aren't there in the Territory when it comes to facing healthcare? Many challenges. So obviously there's a logistic
1: one. So for instance, a town like Catherine is 350 k south of Darwin. Many people consider it to be a big town. It's got 10,000 people in it. So the tyranny of distance is great. Unfortunately, many colleges, and I speak mostly about the Royal Australian College of Physicians here, my own college, which is very different to the College of Surgeons, My college has completely failed to develop strategies to encourage physicians to work in places like Catherine or Tennant Creek. And so there's a lot of systems failures in terms of staffing hospitals and providing high quality care. And that's before you even get to the point that remote living and Aboriginal people have extraordinarily high rates of very complex disease. So for me, working in Catherine Hospital, I diagnosed a new case of rheumatic heart disease every week devastating diagnosis for little kids and one that I saw literally every week. The average age of death of an Aboriginal man in the Catherine region is 49 years and yet the Royal Australian College of Physicians has yet been to provide a single locally trained physician to that hospital apart from myself and obviously this is an issue across rural and remote sites everywhere and so it's a combination of logistics, lack of strategy of our colleges to attract and retain staff, and then obviously really high burdens of complex illness.
2: What are the answers then to fix these challenges?
1: In terms of what colleges can do, I think that we could all learn from what the Royal Australian College of Surgeons has done. A kudos to them. Congratulations. Amazing that they're pushing the agenda so hard and puzzling why the Royal Australian College of Physicians is so profoundly reluctant to try and make rural training a mandatory part of physicians' education, just as a simple start. And so we don't even have the ears of those people that have the privilege of living near Macquarie Street who are so resistant to engage in better training. So getting doctors, good quality doctors, that want to stay in that community and want to invest in that community is really important in a town like Castron or Tennant Creek. Similarly for Darwin and Alice Springs, but less so. And then the real answers, though, for Indigenous health inequity is around colonisation and extreme poverty. And the conversations that I have to suffer through from friends and colleagues in places like Sydney that say lots of money is thrown at Aboriginal people, it is just completely not true. The depth of poverty in the Northern Territory has to be seen to be believed. So for instance, I'll give you an example. In a town like Kintor, which is right out in the Western Desert, a beautiful town full of cultural richness and diversity and many happy people, the average adult income is $166 per week. There's a very young age distribution. And so for every one adult, there's one child. And the price of goods and services in a town like Kintor is roughly three times that of Alice Springs. So it costs around about $10 a litre of milk. Fuel costs anywhere up to $4 and above for a litre of f- fuel. Once people have paid their rent, and the average rental bill for an individual is about $25 each, and their electricity bill for the week, which is about another $10, you've got $130 per week to split between two people, and given that it buys one-third the amount, then essentially people are living on $30 bucks a week equivalent of in Alice Springs. The poverty is unbelievable, and there's just a lack of recognition and acknowledgement. And the other thing that's become increasingly apparent to me is the despicable state of housing that the Northern Territory Government has allowed to flourish. I'll give you an example. At the moment, there's been a contract to a remote community to knock down two very old dwellings and build one new concrete house, three-bedroom house, and the builder was awarded a $2.4 million contract for that. The quality of the houses that they build are appalling. The Northern Territory has the lowest energy efficiency rating requirements of any state in Australia. When you have a poorly constructed and thermally designed house, the cost of keeping it cool in very hot weather is extreme. People have no money. The houses disconnect from power all of the time. And all of this is inherently resolvable. For people who say, oh, these problems are too complex, there's no solution, I'll be quite frank, that's just frankly bullshit. And it's a lack of desire for governing agencies like the Northern Territory and federal government to really get down to the grassroots and to listen to what communities want and to allow communities to make their own solutions. Until the issues of poverty and extreme housing crisis have been resolved, there will be no closing of any gap.
2: It's hard for those who are not in the Territory to comprehend those particular challenges, but you mentioned earlier that there are opportunities.
1: What are they? So at the moment, I'm engaged in a housing program with some Warramunga friends of mine from Tennant Creek who've asked me to help them build a house. I built a spectacular house in Catherine with beautiful views, and it was very cleverly, thermally designed, and it cost almost 50% as much as a Northern Territory Government Housing Commission house. It was way more desirable. It was way more climate sensitive and considered. And so I think giving community agency and so the Woolly Junda housing collaboration is going to prove that we can build culturally appropriate, environmentally appropriate houses at a substantially lower cost than the Northern Territory government is building them. And I think we need strong advocacy from organisations like Royal Australian College of Surgeons to call it for what it is and to demand more clarity and transparency around how the Northern Territory government is misspending money on providing remote Indigenous housing. So you can't really expect any good health outcomes when people go home to two to three bedroom houses where 30 people live in a house.
2: Absolutely. Now, can you tell me a bit about the initiative, The Purple House?
1: Yeah, so look, I'm really very delighted and honoured to be the medical advisor for Purple House. It's a very clear example of giving community agency and seeing what they do. So in 2001, Pinterby people who had some of their elders starting dialysis in Alice Springs really wanted their elders to come home. The elders are the ones that translate the knowledge, the Pinterby knowledge, to the new generation. And so they were very wealthy and very globally famous artists whose artworks hang in the Louvre in Paris and so they quickly raised a million dollars and they developed a board and a constitution and they decided that they'd start providing dialysis in Kintor. And I remember being around in Alice Springs at the time and laughing at the madness of such a crazy idea. And lo and behold, by 2004, they were up and operating and within a short period of time, the Walpere people, neighbouring Walpree people saw what was happening and they also desired their elders to come home and so my Pinterby board instructed their staff to assist the Walpuri community to, in Yundamu to build a dialysis centre there. And it spread on and on and on. And we're now dialysing in 19 remote communities. And we've got another five that are coming online pretty soon. It's a monumental success. I'm instructed to do what I do by my Pinterby bosses. These Pinterby people are deeply, strongly cultural and incredibly intellectually gifted, but in a different paradigm. And Purple House has this wonderful governance model where the board instructs us what to do. And sometimes it sounds a little bit crazy, but then everybody gets together and we realise that we can do what we're instructed to do. And it's a fine balance but it's a monumental success and it is absolutely pinned to be driven. And it's example of why community agency is the only solution. Every time the Northern Territory government tries to intervene, they tangle it up and misspend money. And then if you give the agency to the community themselves and you continue to support them and allow them to thrive, then they do thrive and they come up with very innovative solutions that no white fellow would have even dreamed to consider.
2: You've always had a passion for environmentally sustainable healthcare. What advice would you provide to healthcare professionals that want to be more sustainable?
1: It's very hard to know and it's wonderful to see people like Professor Forbes McGain charging ahead and showing an evidence-based way of how to practice healthcare in a more sustainable way. And it's all of our obligations to contribute in any possible way that we can I often work with juniors who have suggested to me that it's not their responsibility. In the Northern Territory, what I've seen over the last 20 years is nobody has taken responsibility, and I've seen senior clinicians in Darwin in particular just shrug it off as if it's not their responsibility. And you look around yourself, and I remember as a young doctor kicking off in Darwin and thinking that the adults in the room would soon sort out the incredible energy waste that was happening at Royal Darwin Hospital And still today, there has been no attempt and no drive by any of the clinicians to really change the practice of the hospital, which is probably the highest carbon-emitting hospital in Australia, if not the world, per hospital bed. And senior clinicians do have a lot of sway. It just seems that they don't feel that it's their responsibility. And so it needs to come from the grassroots, and it needs to come from a realisation that governments have failed to address it, and then it needs to come from senior doctors that can start really putting caveats on the way that they're going to practice medicine. And even more so, it comes down to colleges like the Royal Australian College of Surgeons saying, well, we're not going to accredit your site if you don't meet some basic standards. I think there's a lot that the medical profession can do. We are very lucky in our privileged voice that is often listened to and we need to use it courageously and loudly to lobby for environmentally sustainable health care.
0: Dr. Simon Quilty. RAC's Post-Op Podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.